This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So, hello, welcome. Um, yeah, so some people I know, some new faces. And uh, it's Dharma Day. So, happy Dharma Day. Um, for those of you who don't know, this is one of the three main festivals that we mark at the Buddhist Centre. Um, Dharma means the, the Buddha's teachings, but also the truth that those teachings point to and how we practice in order to put those teachings into practice. Um, How we, in other words, need to live to be aligned with the truth of our lives, the truth of the world, as the Buddha understood it, and the Buddhist teachings, Buddhist tradition, has explained it. So... You know, the origins of Dharma Day go right back to the very first time that the Buddha taught after his enlightenment and was looking for ways to put his uh, insights into practice. There have been many other ways that Buddhists have tried to explain the same truths over, over over the millennia. And so we've got these teachings... You know, they make a lot of sense as a description of reality, you know, a kind of very deep description of our lives, how they're shaped, the forces at work in our experience. We've got practices we can do, like meditation, where we can work with our minds, and we can bear in mind that, the, you know, the underlying principles... Uh, and then we got the world that we inhabit. And clearly, to me anyway, I think to many of us, that world, that society, the culture we've created, has got many problems. We can think about the Dharma not only in terms of our own lives, but in terms of the world. If the Dharma, the, the teachings of the Buddha, express something really fundamental and really important about the nature of life. And if our world, our society, is in need of help, then at least in principle, we can imagine that there's something in these ancient teachings that's relevant today. And actually, if we care about the world, is important as a way of uh, guiding our thoughts, guiding our behaviour. So that sounds like a reasonable starting point for an investigation. What is the relevance of the Buddha's teachings you know, in terms of the issues that our, our world is facing? That's what I'm going to try and explore a bit today. Uh, I think it's an important question. You might not agree with my ideas about it because I'm going to be moving from talking about the Dharma and principle to talking about the Dharma in practice, and that includes a sense of uh, interpretation, also a sense of 
values? What, what, what does it mean? And there are different views on things like politics and society and so on. But uh, this is going to be my interpretation of, of just one aspect of that anyway. To get into this, I want to um, use a story from the Buddhist tradition. It's from a Buddhist text called the White Lotus Sutra, the Siddharma Pundarika Sutra. And it's a text not from the earliest strand of Buddhism that goes right back to the Buddha, but from the later strand, um, you know, from the early years of the, what we can call the, the common era, the Christian era, so the, the early centuries AD, called the, and it's uh, still very, very well known. In fact, in the Far East, in Japan and China, it's probably the most important Buddhist text. And the, in the first half of this sutra, which is quite an amazing, phantasmagorical, um, cosmic text, uh, which goes far beyond the a depiction of an historical individual, you know, the Buddha two, two and a half thousand years ago. In the first half, there's a series of stories or parables. The story that I'm going to tell is the story of uh, the burning house, the parable of the burning house. And in Far Eastern countries, this story and some of the others are as, as um, well known as, say, the story of the prodigal son, um, the good Samaritan, that sort of thing in Western culture. In other words, everyone would know it. They're part of the uh, common currency. So the story of the burning house is this. Imagine a house, a big, rickety, tumble-down house. Once upon a time, maybe, it looked great, but now it's starting to look a bit decrepit. Uh, the wood's rotting, the beams are, are sagging, and it's, it's full of cobwebs and probably there's mice that scurry around, at least at night. But this house is not a derelict. It's full of people. In fact, it's full of children. So uh, I was just talking to Chris about social services, and I think you definitely want to inspect this. But in this story, <laughs> there, is no, there are no social workers. Uh, at least not exactly. So there are at least 30 children in this house and they are perfectly happy because they've got toys. You know, they, they love playing with their toys and really that's all they think about. There's no mother in this story for some reason, but there is a father. And let's just take it, this father figure is, is the parent. They represent both mother and father. Anyway, the father isn't very happy about the state of the house, and he's kind of used to it, but then he leaves the house. He stands outside the house, and he looks at it, and he thinks, that really is a death trap. That is not a good place to be. And then as he's watching, to his horror, he starts to see smoke appearing at one end of the house. Then he notices flames licking up and he sees what's going to happen. The whole place is going to go up in flames. So the house is on fire. It's a burning house. So what does he do? Naturally, his concern is for his children. And he calls out to them, 
fire, run, get out of there. And they, uh, they just keep playing. Listen to me for once in your lives. Do what I tell you to do. Get out of the house. Shut up, Dad, they say. We're busy. What is he going to do? He, he can't possibly carry them out. Uh, you can imagine maybe he could, and in this story there are no, there's no fire brigade. He has to do it himself. So he, he has to think, and he decides that, thinks, well, what, what's going on with these children? You know, they like toys, so I have to offer them better toys. So he shouts out, hey, kids, come out here and get the really cool toys. This is where the really good toys are. There are all sorts of carts. There are goat carts. There are horse carts. There are bullock carts. They're fantastic. Children look up. What's that? Yes, carts. Carts, come out here. Vehicles, ways to travel around. Oh, all right, that sounds good. So out they come, and one by one, they, they leave the house. He's rescued them. And then when they get there, there aren't any goat carts, and there aren't any horse carts, and there aren't any donkey carts. And they're a bit disappointed, but he says, here, and we, we have to just take an imaginative leap here, here is the most fantastic, amazing bullock cart that you have ever imagined. And there it is, the most amazing bullet cart in the world. The cultural translation breaks down here at some point, but let's just imagine this is to bullet carts what a, um, a Lamborghini is to a, a household saloon car. All right, so this is like a Ferrari bullock here we're talking about. Anyway, the, that's the story. And it's a parable. The parable works on a number of levels. So one level is that it's an image, a story about ourselves and our own relation to what the Dharma is concerned with, what spiritual life, what developing our our minds is concerned about. So the first level is the level of our our own spiritual lives, we are preoccupied with the the stuff of our daily life. We're like the children, playing with the toys. So that's an image, and we can just allow that image to play in our minds. And then we hear the call of something else. Maybe that's the Buddha, or the Dharma, the teaching like that. Something which speaks for another dimension, another perspective. Or maybe we are both the father and the, uh, and the child. Maybe an aspect of us that's just caught up with all of the stuff of the world, with the consumerism and the, uh, the entertainment and the, just the stuff of getting through the day and our petty irritations and all, all that stuff. Those are the toys that our minds like to play with. Meanwhile, there's another part that's saying, look, you've really got to do something about this. You can't just go on like that. In fact, our lives are impermanent. You know, we're not going to live forever. 
we just keep on with this kind of superficial stuff all the time. Our life will have gone by, that will be it, and that's not satisfactory. So we have these different voices. Then there's a second level on which it's important to explain the context of the story. The, the story is uh, set within the White Lotus Sutra, and immediately before we come to the parable of Burning House, the Buddha has said to uh, a group of his disciples, who are enlightened up to a point and in a certain way, that what they've been doing now is okay, it's been sort of effective, but there's a higher teaching which he's now going to reveal. And this is the teaching of the White Lotus Sutra. And at that point, the, um, these uh, Arahant d- disciples say, we're not interested, we don't want to know anything about that, we're leaving. And they, they walk out en masse, they walk out from this great gathering of the Buddha's disciples. This is uh, a parable about different aspects of the Buddhist tradition. It's a, a text from Mahayana school of Buddhism, and the, the message of the sutra is that the early teachings of Buddha tend to focus on the individual self and our individual minds, um, on our negative emotions, our limitations, our attachment to a sense of a fixed self, and that what we need to do is to break certain fetters and then we'll be free from that view of self and we'll be sort of liberated. And what the Buddha of the Lotus Sutra is saying is that that's true up to a point, but there's actually a much wider and deeper and greater vision of life, which is the Bodhisattva ideal. The Bodhisattva ideal is one in which we take that uh, insight that we are not limited to our fixed selves and says we're actually part of this much greater universe. We're interconnected with other beings, and therefore my own desire to, um, to, to get out of the burning house, has to be connected to a, uh, a much wider vision of compassion for everyone. This is the uh, bodhisattva ideal, which the Mahayana Buddhist tradition uh, held on and said that by comparison, the view that simply, uh, that the Dharma practice is simply about breaking fetters and letting go of a narrow sense of, of self is a Hinayana view. It's a limited view. In the parable of the burning house, the vehicles that, the, the, the toy um, bullet carts and all that sort of thing, with which the Buddha entices the children to leave the burning house, these, this is the Hinayana. So it helps at the start of the spiritual life to have a sense that it's about me and my mind and my development but the uh, vision that of the of the of the sutra is that actually that's just what what it calls a skillful means, a means to an end, a partial limited truth, which is uh, a step towards a much greater vision, which uh, may not be there in spelt out in the early teachings, but which is implicit in the the example of the Buddha's own life, particularly his life over many previous lifetimes. This is the bodhisattva ideal which the sutta is uh, advocating. And it's a polemical work. The sutta is a polemical work. It's saying our kind of Buddhism is right, 
your kind of Buddhism is not wrong, but it's lesser. So we need to understand that about the Sutta. Then there's a third dimension that I want to draw out from the, uh, from the Sutta. Sutra, I should say. Which is that image of the burning house. Just consider it. A world that is on fire. Fire is a, an important symbol within the early Buddhist tradition. It's uh, a symbol, you may know, the one of the Buddha, actually after the first teaching, which we mark on Dharma Day, the second teaching the Buddha gave was the Fire Sutra, the Fire Sutta, what uh, T.S. Eliot calls in the Wasteland. We kind of rewrites it, the Fire Sermon, the Fire Sutta. says that our mind is on fire. It's on fire with greed. It's on fire with hatred or aversion. It's on fire with ignorance or delusion. So on a fundamental level, our, our mind is a burning house. And if we're going to practice, we need to leave the house of our ordinary consciousness and find a better way to experience. So this is the uh, one image of fire, and that's sort of a negative image. Then there are more positive images of uh, ways that fire imagery is used in, in the Buddhist tradition, which is about transformation the flames of transformation that liberate us from a, a, a narrow state to a, a broader state. So fire is a symbol, but the notion of things getting hotter and hotter in this rather decrepit environment that we've created may seem a little more familiar than that. You know Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activist teenager who only about a year ago, decided that she was going to have a school strike once a week and has become a global figure. Uh, she used this same image in one of her speeches to the UN or some, some such body. She said to the assembled dignitaries, and she has absolutely no sense of nervousness about her, she said, uh, the world is on fire. And you're just talking about politics. When the world is on fire, you need to put the fire out. Which is not exactly the same image, but it's very similar. She, I wonder if she had encountered a bit of uh, forest and Buddhism. You never know. That image of the burning house, for me, has this tremendous resonance when I think about climate change and the issues that the world faces. And I won't now give a long exposition about all the challenges of climate change and so on and so forth, but just take them for granted. It strikes me that in relation to climate change, it's easy to think, well, I'm the guy outside, we're the guys outside the house who are shouting to the people inside the house. But actually, that's not the way it's worked out. The, 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 the father figures have been scientists. They've been climate scientists who've, been who've just been telling us, by the way, the world is getting hotter and it's going to keep on unless you change your ways. In one of the greatest ironies I can think of, scientists who have rejected religion have become prophets. You know, they're telling us, if you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. 
They're telling us, uh, you know, as Blake says, if you carry on so, it will be so. They are, in scientific terms, laying out the connection between actions and consequences. The uh, consequences are so serious and the actions go so deep into our culture that they can't avoid talking about values, can't avoid talking about ethics. We are in a position where we have to look for an ethical insight to climate scientists. And that's maybe as it should be when we're talking about facts. Um, I just want to say something about climate scepticism here. Because even within our own, my own Buddhist community, there are some people who um, question the, uh, you know, what, what climate science seems to be saying to us. And, and it is a debate. But personally, my, my view is, I have absolutely no way of adjudicating that debate. I'm not a climate scientist. I can't possibly know uh, what the real truth of, of climate science is and climate change and global warming and all those things. How could I possibly know for a fact? So I have to turn to the experts. And the majority of the experts are telling me that it's real. A minority may be saying that uh, it's not happening in that way, and they may turn out to be correct. I don't know. But in the absence of um, certainty, we have to go with probabilities. And when the great majority are giving us you know, what seemingly is a very authoritative uh, message, which has a very strong in, uh, impact on our own personal actions, uh, our ethical responsibilities, then we have no alternative, my, in my view, no responsible, legitimate alternative, but to heed what they say and to act on it. That's why I personally take what the, me the message of the climate science, the message that we're in <coughs> uh, a burning house and a burning planet, if we're not careful, uh, very seriously. In responding to that, I also want to know what it is that I can contribute. And as a community, I think we should be asking, what is it, what is it that we can contribute as Buddhists from the perspective of the Dharma? I mean, of course, we've got our responsibilities as citizens, but we may have something extra to offer. If so, then we need to think that, about that quite carefully. So I've used terms like values and ethics and said that they're coming really from science and that they relate to the relationship between actions and consequences. In fact, I think the phenomenon of climate change means we have to think about ethics in a slightly different way, and it expands our sphere of reference. We can think about ethics in terms of how I act towards people around me, how I, whether I'm kind to you or whether I'm cruel to you. Those, those are my personal ethics. Actually, Buddhist ethics traditionally goes quite a long way further than that through the teaching of karma. It says that the kinds of consequences that come back to us are on an all sorts of levels. If we act with a hateful, a mind that's full of hatred or craving, that will rebound on us in a whole range of ways. For one thing, it will create uh, our personality, our character. 
which is the result of all of those uh, mental states and the choices that we make from those states. But it says more than that. It says it will create an environment around us, will create a world which expresses our state of mind and which reflects it back to us. People who are very angry will end up inhabiting a world of other angry people and experience the world in a very angry way. In fact, karma goes a lot further than that because it says this will play out in terms of future lives and so on. We may or may not need to to take that into account. But it strikes me that climate change expands our reference in the same sort of way. What's the connection between driving a car and ethical considerations? I mean, the consequences of driving a car, not that it's a terrible thing to do under all circumstances, but, you know, the consequences of driving a car are seemingly very limited. You get from A to B, thank you very much. But the aggregate consequences of everyone driving cars and having uh, the, fo- and the fossil fuels that they, um, they use to, to drive around being released into the atmosphere, along with everything else, is climatic change. So the ecosystem is acting as a kind of feedback loop for us. It closes the loop between our actions and um, our consequences. You know, we don't experience that directly. Our actions are magnified throughout the planet. The climate is affected, and that rebounds on us in a way that really mirrors the Buddhist vision of karma. So the climate, in the scientific view, is a kind of karma machine. And and, and then Buddhist ethics adds another dimension. It says it's not so much about driving cars. Really, the fundamental issue is the mental states, the states of mind, whether those are states of kindness and generosity and awareness or states of craving, aversion and ignorance, the states of mind that inform our lives, that shape our choices, that guide our actions. This is really the extra bit that Buddhist ethics brings in. We'll come back to that, but let's just hold that thought that something in our minds is really important in the whole realm of ethics. So then how do we talk about ethics in in Buddhism in really specific terms? And this is now where we come to a formulation of the Dharma, but one that's really relevant on every level. I'm going to apply it to climate change, but it also has many other ways in which it's relevant. This is the five precepts. So I'm imagining most of you know the five precepts, but I'm going to go through them because I think they're really um, encapsulate what we as Buddhists have to say to the wider society when it comes to issues around environmentalism. I mean, actually, it has a lot to say on, on the level of you know, what makes a good society. So the five precepts are the uh, ethical guidelines that all Buddhists follow. They probably precede the Buddha, or at least the first four of them probably do. But he adopted them, and every Buddhist follows them. Monks and nuns have lots of extra precepts. 
in the uh, Tree Ratna Buddhist order, we've got a slightly expanded version of the uh, five precepts, which is ten precepts. But they're not that different, really. The first four are the same. But all lay Buddhists follow the five precepts. So I'll just tell you what they are in negative form, and then I'll go through them again, one by one, in both negative form and the positive form. The positive form is very important. So the negative version of the precepts is, first of all, abstaining from taking life. We say we undertake the training principle to abstain from taking life. Secondly, not taking that which is not given. Thirdly, not abstaining from sexual misconduct. Fourthly, abstaining from false speech. And fifthly, and finally, abstaining from intoxicants. So you may be thinking, well, what's the relationship between sexual misconduct and climate change? All will be revealed. The first precept, then, is the precept of not taking life. Or, to put it slightly differently, the precept of loving-kindness. So when we recite the precept, we say, with acts of loving-kindness, I purify my body. The first precept is not taking life. So that means not taking human life, and by extension, not harming other human beings. But it also means not taking the lives of animals, at least unnecessarily. It means not taking the lives of any living beings. And we're learning that actually plants have a kind of, I don't know if we can say sentience, but they're certainly living beings that are responsive and alive. And what the science is telling us, that there are more and more reasons to extend this first precept. So this is the basic principle. Not causing suffering, not causing harm when we can avoid it. In a way, that's the the secret of all ethics for Buddhism and, and actually for many other ethical traditions. If we think about this in relation to our responsibilities to the planet, to the environment, we can reflect that we have a responsibility to avoid the harm that will, that will arise if climate change occurs. The living beings with which we should be concerned are not just the people we see around us. It's not even the uh, people around the globe, some of whom are much more vulnerable to the effects of climate change than we are. It's future generations. We have a responsibility to the people, the living beings who have not yet been born. What world are we bequeathing them? I have a responsibility as a father to my son, but I have a responsibility to his children as well. And that's why it's very important that we we don't just think about ethics in terms of what's happening now, but in terms of the future. In Wales, we have this really inspiring piece of legislation, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act which states that every action of the Welsh government needs to take into account the well-being of future generations. You may have heard that there's a collaboration going on between some of us with the Welsh government and how mindfulness can inform that. Anyway, so the well-being of future generations being part of the first precept. The second precept is not taking that which is not given. 
It's not exactly the same as thou shalt not steal. The difference is worth thinking about. It's worth reflecting on. It implies that there are things that we don't steal. You know, we don't steal oil from under the, the, the sea. But has it been given? So this really uh, asks the question, where in our actions are we exploiting? Where are we taking things unduly? The positive aspect of that precept is generosity. With acts of generosity, I purify my body. Then we come to the third precept, which is the one I mentioned before, sexual misconduct. And the connection here is with the positive formulation of that, which is with stillness, simplicity and contentment, I purify my body. That's the opposite of craving. These are the, the things that we can cultivate in, as an alternative to the kind of craving that might lead us to harm people through our sexual activity. But actually, stillness, simplicity and contentment, we can think of as antidotes to all sorts of craving. Because what is driving our crisis? If it isn't economic growth, if it isn't the desire for consumer goods, if it isn't a, a, a lifestyle which is geared around what we want rather than what we can sustain. The precept there is about introducing more stillness into our lives. And that's a radical action in a culture which is geared towards stimulation. Simplicity in our lives, which means seeing if we can be okay with having less rather than putting our energy into getting more. And contentment, getting to know the pleasure the enjoyment of simple things. I think this comes quite naturally once you start meditating. You start, I mean, I found this more and more over the years, that it may just be middle age, of course, that I enjoy things like walks in the countryside, gardening, gardening and stuff that, well, I was going to say things that don't cost money. Actually, gardening is rather expensive. Looking for sources of contentment, and meditation is a very important one of those, as are many other things like friendships and sangha. So finding contentment in all of those things that feed our soul rather than draining our bank balance. Then we come to the fourth precept, which is truthful speech. I think there the environmental ethic is really about a responsibility to speak the truth. As I say, we don't actually know the truth. I mean, even climate scientists don't know the truth. They just tell us what they think it probably is. But that's what passes for truth in this world. And that's what we have to be willing to stand up and speak out about. And I feel this more and more myself, that um, this is one of the things I do want to speak about. And it also means being honest with ourselves about the compromises that we make. And it's not that you know, we should castigate ourselves for foreign holidays or whatever it might be. But we just need to be honest in, in really reflecting on, on these things. Then, finally, we have abstaining from intoxicants. And with mindfulness clear and radiant, I purify my mind. There we can ask, well, how on earth did we get ourselves into this situation in the first place? 
I, I was doing one uh, a, a sort of climate change event, and um, I was on the lineup with Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who I must say is a very impressive person. And he used the analogy in a very light way of cutting off the branch you're sitting on. Why on earth would you do that? Maybe you, you like the wood. You think, oh, that would be useful. <laughs> but maybe it's because, in some sense, you're drunk. You're intoxicated with something else. So a better analogy than the, the, uh, the sawing off the branch is the burning house analogy. You're so busy playing with your toys, you don't really think about the fact that the house is on fire. To apply it to climate change, we might need to <coughs> extend the analogy slightly. It's not just that we're playing with our toys. We're actually fanning the flames because they, they keep us nice and warm. Uh, we're taking rafters out, out of the ceiling to make the fire a bit bigger because that seems a really good idea and we're not really thinking about how ceilings work. The fifth precept is about, it, it, we say, abstaining from intoxicants that cloud the mind. Uh, Buddhism doesn't preach teetotalism, but it does say that you know, if we're interested in awareness, then we need to, on the whole, steer clear of things that feed our unawareness. It means that, but it, 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 by extension, it means everything that intoxicates us. And again, we need to be quite honest with ourselves about that. And mindfulness is the alternative. Mindfulness, sati, the capacity of the mind to stand back, to recognize what's happening, to see the truth of our experience, and then to act on it. This is what I take from the parable of the burning house. It's quite a stark image of delusion. It's an image of a world that really doesn't recognize itself. Now, actually, there's a whole range of opinions and there's a great deal that's happening in regard to climate change. But the extent to which it's not enough, we're staying in the house. And this is important. It's important for us individually. It's important for our children. It's important for the world. The Dharma isn't primarily concerned in its it, way it's formulated with those sorts of social, cultural, political issues. The Dharma starts with, you know, me and my mind. It really does do that. But it also opens out into these issues. When you find yourself in that situation of being in a house that's on fire, you really need all the clarity, all the depth, all the perspective, the awareness, the openness of mind, the compassion to leave it and to encourage other people to leave it as well. We can think about the climate change crisis as a political issue. Why don't they get on with it? Or an economic issue? We can think about it as a cultural issue. You know, we really need to change the culture in order to move towards the values of the five precepts. But there's something beneath that, at least if you take the perspective of Buddhism and Buddhist ethics, which is a spiritual issue. The spiritual issue is that while we are driven by greed, by craving, aversion and ignorance, we, just, we will, one way or another, 
continue to express them through our actions. There's a growing awareness, I think, that the climate crisis is at root a spiritual crisis. To say that is also to uh, magnify the difficulty of addressing it. Of course, we need to address things on whatever level we can. If it is a spiritual crisis, the world needs people to be identifying an alternative, a spiritual alternative, a different perspective from the one which is keeping business as usual going. And who is to do that? Who is to express that alternative? Who is to embody it in their lives? Who will do that except those who have a spiritual practice? And who will do it with clarity except those who have a practice that's grounded in the Buddha's wisdom, in the Dharma? And who is that if it isn't us? We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 